I'm on. It's great. It's great to be with you. It, uh, I've only been doing this month, so I can't work it out still. Um, this is, uh, it's been a great night together so far, and we've, uh, we've had some really precious things, hearing news of mission partners and the work they're doing, exciting. Uh, hearing so many of you guys walking together, that's awesome. Um, I want to uh, pray that the Lord blesses even this time now, having heard the precious word of God read, but let's now explore it together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you would let this time be a great blessing to us. Please help us to listen well, listen carefully, uh, help me to speak what's true, and please work by your Spirit in all our distant places uh, to change and transform us, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to give you two words, uh, futility and meaningful. Futility, meaningful. Two very different words. Uh, two words that uh, have massively different outcomes for your life. Futility, meaningful. To live a life and have it end in futility. To live it and spend years living it only to realise that it has been a waste of time. It's been empty, it's been futile, is, is a great distress. I remember uh, many years ago actually reflecting on what my life would be, uh, and I know many of you uh, have gone through this journey as well. Um, what's the point? How will it be anything else but futile? I'll live all these years and die and that'll be the end. What's the point? What's, how does it not be just futile? Um, you know, if you could know that living in a certain way would end in futility, it would just be nothing, you'd want to change it, wouldn't you? If it were possible actually to live a life that was meaningful, that, that was rich and had purpose, uh, you'd want to find out how to live that life, surely. I mean, that was my hunger and passion many years ago. To live a meaningful life, to live a life of meaning that lasts, that has real purpose, that's worthwhile, is infinitely better than to have just wasted it. How do you get that life? How do you get the meaningful life, not the futile life? How do you get the meaningful life? I think there's a simple key. And it comes out in the passage that we're looking at together today. We're back in the book of Esther. Uh, we're looking at chapters 3 and 4, we're moving along in this account of what happened 480 years before Jesus. And I want to suggest to you, we, I want to jump straight into it actually, chapter 4 verse 13. And I want to alert you to, I think what the key is, here's the key, and you'll see it come out here. It's about personal identity. Now before you kind of turn off and go, ah, personal identity, everyone's talking about being who you are and all this kind of thing. Let me just warn you that, that it's about personal identity, but it's about personal identity in a way that you've not heard people in our community talk about it. It's a very different way of thinking about personal identity and I want to take us there. Jump straight in, let's see the key piece where this emerges, how to get a meaningful life out of futility, how to get a meaningful life through understanding yourself. It's there in chapter 4, uh, the end of the whole chunk we're looking at together you get verse 10 uh, verse I'm sorry 13 a man called Mordecai we met him last week in chapters 1 2 uh, Mordecai uh, writes to his adopted daughter uh, who is Esther now the queen of Persia and Mordecai writes and says don't think that because you're in the king's house you alone of all the Jews will escape for if you remind if you remain silent at this time Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 
Now, there's lots of stuff we need to put in place. We'll look at the context in a second, but I want you to see Esther's response to this. Verse 15, she says, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, the capital of Persia, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish... I perish. Now, I want to show you how profound this is, but right there, this woman, Esther, has grown up. She is a changed woman. Everything, in fact, in this book turns on this moment. There's lots of little moments that add together. We've been looking at that over the last week or so, but this is the big moment where the whole thing changes. Up until this point, Esther has been uh, the woman out of every romantic comedy, superficial, good-looking, fun, but empty. She, she won Bot Bachelor, do you remember, last week? Um, and she's now the queen, she's the, married to the great king. That's how she's been. But from this point on, you see her emerge with substance, depth, courage steel now what's happened how has she gone from that ditzy beautiful girl to this deep noble charactered person well that's what we want to look at let me give you the context and we'll come back to this the context 480 bc the jews for many years had been scattered across the world uh, they were defeated in war and taken into exile uh, many decades earlier than 400, about the, the kind of 500s uh, or so, 587 I think it is BC. They'd been taken into Babylon in exile uh, and been there for many decades. Eventually they were let able to return under Cyrus, a new king that emerged. They could go back to Jerusalem, back to their home. Many did go back, but lots stayed. And for a couple of generations, you see people staying in exile. And that brings us to this time, Mordecai and Esther. They've stayed. Mordecai has raised his orphaned cousin, Esther, as his own daughter. And she, through various circumstances, we looked at it last week, has won the heart of the king. And she's now queen. Esther. An orphan Jewish girl is now queen to the greatest king at the time. But then you hit chapter 3 and the great horror emerges. The great disaster to come upon the Jewish people in the world. And let me take you through how it emerges. Chapter 3, we're introduced to a new character, a man called Haman. Look at verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than all the other nobles. This man Haman, we've not heard of him before, he now just emerges, he's a particularly significant figure in the ancient world, and he's elevated to be honoured higher than all others. Verse 2, all officials that are bow down to him and pay him the honour. The king had commanded that this would be the case. But one person didn't bow down, a man called Mordecai, the man who was the father, the adoptive father of Esther. Now, we don't know why he wouldn't bow down. 
People asked him why he wouldn't bow down. Verse 4, day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. That is probably the only hint as to why he didn't bow down. But it's only a very subtle hint, it's very vague and I think deliberately so. And the reason I suspect he didn't bow down had little to do with idolatry. You know, it's easy to imagine this is Mordecai with a great conscience about if I bow down, I might be worshipping someone, I'm to worship God alone. No, no, no. Bowing down to Haman was nothing different really than saluting a commanding officer. There was no, no indication here that it was an act of worship that would trigger Mordecai's conscience. And so why is Mordecai refusing to bow down? Well, it's possible that there's a significant history of hostility between these two people or at least their forebears, their ancestors which has come into their own uh, personhood and life together. You'll notice there in verse chapter 3 verse 1 when Haman's introduced we're told that he is an Agagite. When Mordecai is introduced back in chapter 2 verse 5 we're told that he's a Jew now there's a long history of hostility between Jews and Agagite. Uh, the, the kind of, it goes all the way back down through the, the years, long before these two men. And it's possible that Mordecai is captive to this ancient hurt and hostility towards this people. And given that Haman is one of these people, he refuses to honour him because of that ancient hostility and it's even possible uh, there's a little bit of bad blood between them because if you get the end of chapter 2 you'll see that Mordecai has rescued the king and deserves great honour because of that but he's not honoured. Chapter 3 after these events you ought to see that Mordecai's honoured but instead we hear about Haman being elevated and given a seat of honour. Is there bad blood? Yes, there seems to be bad, bad blood. It goes way back. But what you have here, therefore, is a personal squabble. A kind of a pettiness, perhaps, of Mordecai towards Haman. And pride from Haman towards Mordecai. Haman's wounded and angry that Mordecai doesn't bow to him as he thinks he ought. And in Haman's wounded pride, he doesn't just react to, to Mordecai, he determines with now the power that he has, given that Mordecai is a Jew, to actually cleanse the world of all Jews, to pursue ethnic cleansing, that every Jew in the world would be killed because of his hatred towards this man Mordecai. Now that is power gone wrong, verse 5 and 6. He learned that Mordecai's people were the Jews and he looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes so that it would even impact Jerusalem where they were trying to rebuild the temple and so on. He brings this to the king, verse 8, and creates what I'm going to call a narrative. You've heard the language of narrative. He goes to the king and he says, he lists out a certain bunch of truths. There's a certain people among the, your nations, their customs are different and so on. It's 
And then he builds this story around it, which says, you ought to get rid of them. He builds this narrative around these people that they're hostile and horrific and evil and ought to be, be rid of. And the king is convinced and determines to let it happen. Verse 11, uh, do what with the people as you please. Now, just a quick little aside here. I, just, <laughs> I, I think King Xerxes has just done what almost every user of social media has done in their lifetime heard someone join a bunch of facts together, create a story out of a narrative out of it, and without fact-checking, shot off an angry message and said how horrible this is, how horrible that... You know, just, was it just last week, the week before? A, um, a young man in uh, Sydney um, died of a heart attack swimming, uh, just a teenager in high school. And uh, a woman on social media had asked two people what had happened and they swore on their life that he'd just had a vaccination and the vaccination led to his heart attack. So she posted that this is, the core, this is what happens when you take vaccine and it's going to give you heart attacks and this is horrible and posts that, which caused a massive wave of reaction against the family and the school he went to and his friends. Everyone jumped on and piled onto the school and said, how dare you vaccinate? And they jumped onto the government and said, how dare you? The problem was none of it was true. The kid hadn't been vaccinated at all. It was just some weird freak accident. Brothers and sisters, King Xerxes was the pile-on man. He had someone give him a narrative, tell him a story, sign this petition, the government there is dreadful, jumped on it. Don't be like that. Take care. Check things. In fact, don't respond. We've got enough people going crazy online. But come back into their world. This wasn't a trivial thing. I mean, not as if those things are trivial, but this, this went nuclear. This was massive. The consequences of the king's failure... And Haman's jealousy and pride led to a whole people in danger of all being destroyed. Look at verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews. Just in case you didn't understand what the word destroy meant. Kill and annihilate as well. And all their property taken. This is very clear and emphatic that Haman is determined to rid the world of this people. And again, last week we saw that surely this couldn't have ever happened. Well, it happened in the Second World War under Hitler. This is what humans are capable of with the power that they can have. Verse 15, the two men who caused this are sitting at home having a drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. Then chapter 4. Mordecai learns of all of this and he tears his clothes in grief. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and went about wailing loudly and bitterly. But he couldn't go further. He couldn't bring on any of this to uh, the king because he's not allowed into the presence of the king. And he can't take it to the queen except that verse 4, his adoptive daughter just happens to be the queen. And she's it just so happens, interested in her adoptive father. And so they connect. You see, she's been living in a bubble, in the harem, in the palace, 
it seems she knows nothing of what's going on except that it just so happens that her adoptive father knows exactly what's going on and is able to communicate with her through a slave news is brought to esther and her response is in verse 11 and it's incredibly disappointing all the king's officials and the peoples of the royal provinces know says esther that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends his golden scepter to them and spares their life to allow them to come but 30 days have passed since i was called up to go to the king so what she's saying is like you know it's really tough and i just i mean i can't i just have to sit on the side and watch all of this happen because i haven't been called by the king and if i try and go in there without being called he'll kill me so like you know i can't do much about this my hands are tied and so we come to our moment verse 12 esther's words are reported to mordecai and he sends back this answer the answer we read earlier but let's take a little bit more time to go through it because it's utterly profound i'm going to suggest there's three things to take notice of here in mordecai's answer there's a reality a choice and an inspiration reality the father writes to his adoptive daughter and says verse 13 don't think that because you're in the king's house you alone of all the jews will escape don't think that you can sit on the sidelines you're a jew and sitting in the bubble of the privilege that you enjoy playing croquet and having idle chats with the world whatever you're doing don't think that you'll escape the reality is that this will find you out as well and you'll be destroyed you're a jew you will go down with all the jews reality and the reality is verse 14 if you remain silent at this time relief and deliverance for the jews will arise from another place i think what mordecai is saying here is that he he perceives behind the events of history the great sovereign arm of god at work and he says God will rescue his people deliverance will come it's just that it will come from another place and you and your father's family will perish and I think likely what Mordecai is saying is if you prove yourself to be faithless in this and without confidence in the Lord God he will bypass you and leave you death will come to you this is the reality these truths are brutal reality there's no hiding from this he says to his daughter there's no pretending that it will just pass you by none of that will stop it happening there's no fence that you can sit on there's no sideline that you can be outside of and watch it all happens Mordecai is saying you are caught up in this as well and you have therefore a choice whether to be part of this deliverance or not it will come but you need to choose whether you'll be in it or left out of it choice but third 
he finishes with a powerful piece of inspiration. You look at the end of verse 14. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows that your life may well intend, be intended to have great meaning and purpose, to have something significant about it and its intentions, that God may have put you and moved you and placed you in this very position to be used in this wonderful way. There is an inspiration that Mordecai gives her. You see, the choice before is to continue to think that she lives on the sidelines of this great conflict, that it's just a conflict between those Jews out there and Haman and the Persians, and she'll be able to just sit and watch it and it'll all be okay. If she continues to think that she can sit it out, she will get caught up in it because there's no sideline. Mordecai smashes that perception. You are in the playing field. There is no one on the sideline. And you'll be in the playing field either as a passive blockage that God will remove or an active participant making a difference. She can choose what she will be in these great movements of history. And how does she choose what she will be? By embracing who she is. By embracing her personal identity as God's person, as one of God's people. And that God may well have put her in this very place for this purpose. Now Esther's response, I'll come back to that in a moment. Esther's response, verse 15. Go and gather together all the Jews and fast. Do you see the shift that's occurred? Up until this point, she's been very passive, responsive. Mordecai tells her what to do, she does it. Now she's actually stepped up and become the one who actually tells Mordecai what to do. She's taken charge. She's no longer the woman of the beginning of chapter 4. When told about all of this, verse 11, she said, look, it's dangerous, what can I do? If I go in without being announced, I'll get killed, it's just too hard. She's no longer that woman, look how it finishes. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She is a changed woman. She is now a woman of great courage. She is a woman of initiative. She's determined to take great risks and go against the law. Before this, she was a very compliant person who just fitted in with whatever was expected of her. But now she's ready to die. How has this happened? Well, she's faced reality. There is no sideline. And she's embraced who she truly is. She's embraced the identity that matters most, that she is a member of God's people, the God of the universe, she is one of his. You see, up until this point, she's hidden that truth. If you've been reading from chapters 1 and 2, she was encouraged actually by Mordecai that when she went into the bachelor house, she wasn't to tell anyone that she was a Jew. She hid her identity and perhaps hid it from herself so that she compromised. She went along with the flow of whatever the bachelor house was doing, ate all the food, lived the way they lived, slept with the king, just did whatever. 
because she let her identity slide. The reality check comes from her adopted father and it forces her to face this question. Who am I really? What is my life about, really? And she stepped up. She owned who she was. She chose no longer to be passive, to think that she could sit it out. And in that moment, she grows. She deepens. She no longer waits on Mordecai. She takes charge. She commands. She initiates. She takes risk courage. Why? Because she owns who she truly is. And here's where I started. Because what I want to suggest, in one sense, what I'm saying sounds like what everyone else is saying. Be who you are. It sounds like every Disney movie, be who you are. Now, there's something in that. You see, what we're seeing in our current climate and culture is a half-truth, which is also a half-lie. There's something that needs to be thought into far more about the personal identity thing. Let me do this with us for a moment. You see, it matters that we be who we are, but what matters most is that we be crystal clear on what it is about ourselves that matters most. It, it's important to be who you are. But what's even more important is to work out what matters about who you are. What is it about who I am that matters the most? You see, there's lots of things that make us up. There's lots of things that shape who I am as a person, my identity. You know, my, my, um, my history, my family, my, where I grew up, where I live, how tall I am, how short I am. There's all kinds of things that make up who I am. Um, you, you know, my sex, uh, my, my, my sexual identity, my, uh, whether I'm same-sex attracted, opposite person attracted. These things are all part of who I am. These things make up my identity. Esther, she was a woman. She was attracted to a man she was the queen she was a beautiful woman she was favored by many these are things that shaped who she was but in the face of coming judgment she realized none of that mattered in light of life and death what really mattered about who she who she was what was crystal clear was that she was God's person a member of his covenant community and being his person, she realised, mattered more than anything else. Such that she would give up a whole life to serve that purpose, do you see? You see, be who we are. It's the cry of the day. But it's a big mistake buried in it to be, get this, anything that Hollywood celebrities tell you to do, take with a very great grain of salt. I mean, don't let Hollywood and their celebrities teach you how to live life and one of the things that they're teaching us is that um, who you are well it's the color of your skin if, if your skin is black then that's who you are that's the big thing about who you are or they're saying if you are attracted to the same sex then that's who you are that's the big thing about who you are be tall and proud about who you are what they're doing is making particular pieces of my story my history 
into the big thing that reads everything about my life. No. This is a great mistake. Those features of who you are are small. They cannot bear the weight of your whole identity and all of life lived through them. It will mean you will live a life of futility. You'll end your days with futility. Yes, my skin colour, my ethnicity is part of who I am. But it's not the big thing. Whether I struggle with same-sex attraction or not, it's part, that's part of my story. But it's not the big thing. Whether you're heterosexual or not, it's not the big thing. All of these things make up part of you, but none of them are big enough to make the central defining feature. Now, it matters that we get this right, to have any hope of leading a truly meaningful life. So think with me. What is the big thing about you? What is the, the, the thing that's the, the, the right thing to make the central defining feature of your identity? What is that? Let me give you some pieces. First thing, that we're creatures made by God. That's who we are. That we're made for eternity. That we're not just here today, gone tomorrow. We are eternal creatures made by God forever. That's who we are. We're made in his image. We are unique of all creatures. We're image bearers made for relationship with the creator of the universe. That's who we are. These things are true, of course, of every human. And they are the big truths, the great truths, the glorious truths. But there's more to be said. Who are we? We are a person either who embraces those truths and pursues relationship with God and finds it because of the merits of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus on my behalf, having bowed the knee to him, I become in Jesus and a born-again follower of Christ in relationship with God. I'm either a person in relationship with God or I'm outside of relationship with God. That's who I am. Now, why, why do these things matter about me? Why does it matter to understand that I'm a creature made in the image of God for eternity, that I'm either in Jesus or outside of Jesus, that these are the features that matter most? Why do they matter most? Because there's a day coming when we will all stand before this God. And on that day, the only thing that will matter about who you are is whether you know the living God through the merits of Jesus. The only thing that will matter is whether you're in Jesus, a follower of Jesus. It won't matter that Esther was a queen. It, it, it won't matter that you're um, a, a great success in your career it won't matter that you get a gold medal in the olympics it, it, it won't matter whether you um, were same-sex attracted or not it, these things will be of no account what will matter on that day when everything's laid bare and it's just you and the living god what matters on that day is whether you've embraced the grace of god in jesus or not whether you are a follower of jesus or not 
That's all that'll matter. That's all that'll be left. And so here is the application of these chapters for us today. You know, uh, this story, it's big. You know, these events that happened all those centuries before Jesus, uh, uh, this whole book is about the danger against this people, the Jews, and how God saves them with his hidden hand in a way that's not seen. Now, why does he care to save these people? He made a promise to save them. Why does he care that a saviour might come from them? That this people might be saved so that the saviour of the world might come, and he does. God saves these people, delivers them. And the Saviour comes. But the Saviour has come and in the coming of Jesus, he redefines who the people of God are. No longer it's about ethnicity, no longer it's about being a Jew. That doesn't make you a person of God any longer. What matters is that the gospel, the opportunity now to become in relationship with God, is open to people of every nation. Because the Saviour, because this nation's been saved so that a Saviour can come and bring the blessing of relationship with God to all peoples. To us, to all nations, whatever nations. Now, at one level, this book, therefore, is finished. It's a great testament of the God who keeps his word by his hidden hand. But at another level, it's a picture of a larger reckoning. It's a small-scale model of the fact that one day, God will bring deliverance for his his total people, the people established by Jesus. And in delivering his people on that final day, he will bring um, vindication of his name. He will bring justice to the earth. He'll bring an ultimate deliverance where all things will be set right. And those in Jesus will be saved. And those who are outside of Jesus will be cast out justly because of human pride. Do you see therefore how this passage speaks to us? Let me give you a couple of directions. It speaks to the world generally. And it says to the world generally that just like there was a reality of God's judgment and his vindication and his determination to save, that's exactly the case today. God will bring about this vindication. You may be watching the stream tonight and I'm not a follower of Jesus. And can I just offer Mordecai's letter to you in a sense to say, you can't sit this one out. There's no sideline. This vindication that God one day will bring for all humanity, for his people amongst all humanity, will capture you up as well. And what will matter on that day is whether you're in Jesus or not in Jesus. That's all that will matter. And who knows but that you have come to watch this stream for just this moment that you might have been brought by God to this very place to see your need to put your life in the hands of Jesus and enter back in relationship with God. So this speaks to the world. But it speaks to Christians particularly. I'd suggest Mordecai's letter is a kind of a letter that could be written to all believers today in our world with this anticipated great vindication of God to come. And it says... 
you can't sit this one out brothers and sisters there is no sideline you can't hide who you are and imagine everyone else can engage in the battle everyone else can pursue these things and wrestle with these things you can't sit this one out brother sister of Christ failure here means you will lose everything Jesus says whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this present generation I'll be ashamed of him when he comes if you hide your identity if you're ashamed of your identity in Christ you will get caught up in this and it will be very tragic your life will end up futile you see this passage comes with a warning but it doesn't just come with a warning it comes with a powerful inspiration a wonderful inspiration for a life of meaning and significance and purpose about the part that we play in God's great purposes to vindicate his name you see who knows but that God has put you in the very place you're in for such a moment as this who knows well I think we can say we do know that God has put each of us in exactly the place we're in at present the God who works all things according to his great purposes and plans has put you in exactly the place you're in in that family you're in in that marriage you're in in that work situation you're in. God has put you in those places amongst that group of friends that you've got God's put you there and who knows that he might have put you there to actually be part of his purposes to vindicate his holy name to achieve his purposes of building his church and making disciples of all nations who knows but that he's put you there to partner him and his purposes now I'm not suggesting that he's put you there to save the whole world very few of us will change the world but he has put you where you are to change your part of the world to bring testimony of God to that part of the world to be salt and light to not hide your life under a basket you see friends there is something profound that God intends for your life something inspirational it really is quite beautiful he intends that you use whatever circumstances you're in to step up as someone whose chief identity is as a person of Christ a follower of Christ to embrace that identity and step into that identity and activate that identity my wonderful wife has been using this language in the last couple of weeks of stepping up into it and uh, I think it's helpful language do you know to live a meaningful life a life that makes a difference as God intends is to get off the sidelines to no longer passively watch as people wrestle over the things of Christ to own who you truly are the deepest thing about you because what matters most about who you are is that you belong to Christ that that will last forever everything else is part of who you are but is far secondary there's daylight between those things and who you are in Christ but none of that means anything unless you activate it and step up into it and if you do two things will happen you'll make a difference and you'll grow you'll have a life of meaning 
you'll enter into who you are more and more and that identity about who you are will make you stronger and deeper and it'll actually give you the ability to start no longer being passive and responsive but actually active and energized God intends this for you let me give you some quick illustrations of what it means to step up into these things first one stream the stream you know um, I know lots of you have been online all week watching things all through the week but your decision to walk across the lounge room and make sure you turn on the stream on a night like this is you activating who you are that I am in Christ it's my relationship with him that matters most that I connect with others who are followers of Christ in this fellowship matters more than anything that you activate that is profound and powerful uh, you're watching so be encouraged keep doing it fight to do it because who you are in Christ is the big thing about who you are prayer do you know if you commit yourself to pray not just about your own hurts and bruises and what's happening in your life but if you commit to pray about the cause of the gospel the the the, the health of the church you're part of if you're part of EV that you you pray for our flourishing as a church that no one would be lost to the things of Christ during this time that people would grow in the midst of this time if you pray for our church it's expressing a sense that who I am is a person of Christ and partnering in his work that matters more than anything your prayers ought to reflect that and if you do pray that you will actually activate that identity and deepen it and grow in it third walk in there make an opportunity to go and walk with a Christian brother or sister and encourage them in the faith ring them up and encourage them in the faith find some way to communicate and encourage others in the faith because who you are in Christ is the most important thing you are and that you activate that step up into that will strengthen you and make a difference who knows but that God has put you amongst your friends with the connections you've got to help them in their walk with Christ of course he has make the most of it you know talk to those who aren't followers of Christ invite them to life invite them to connect to the stream next week with Father's Day who knows but that you're put in the family you're in to actually speak to your parents to speak to your siblings to help them come to know the things of Christ I think you have been put there for that a meaningful purposeful life go to the website pick up a have a go thing activate who you are and brothers and sisters the more we do this the more the security and sureness of a meaningful life flourishes and grows that the more you sit on the sidelines and let it all walk past and hide your identity the more you guarantee that you'll end up in futility pursue who you are in Christ as the most important thing about you and step up into it let me pray Heavenly Father we ask please that that might be exactly the case for each of us that you would help us see who we are eternal creatures made in your image made for relationship with you and that that relationship's established through the death and resurrection of Jesus please help us appreciate that being a person of Christ 
is the big thing about us. Help us appreciate that, please. And help us step up into that. Help us activate what it means to be that person. That like Esther, we might grow and make a difference in the world we live in. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, just as Esther was with...